0: Welcome to the Bridging Theology Podcast, which connects scholarship to Christian life. I'm Dr. Kevin Hill, and I'm joined today by co-host Dr. Candace Smith. We're members of the hosting team, along with Drs. Beth Stovell, Claudia Herrera-Montero, and Ryan Reed. Today's episode features the conversation with Dr. Jessica Joy Candelario. Joy is a pastoral associate and program coordinator at CICM. Bukal Nung Tipan Pastoral Center in the Philippines. Her research centers on body theology, embodied practices, narrative pedagogy, and her doctoral dissertation was titled, "Kafwa as Participation, Towards Remembering a Filipino Passion. Joy, welcome to the Bridging Theology podcast.
1: Hello, everyone, and thank you for having me. So honored. So Joy, tell the audience
2: something interesting about yourself that most people might not know.
1: Well, most people might not know that I have three dogs (laughs) and Mm -hmm. I got them during the pandemic. They they all became part of the family. So meanwhile, I became a firm mommy. Is that how you call them? (laughs) (laughs) Someone like me. Yeah. So I have three dogs and I have fun with them. A good emotional support, but also you know, an extension to the family that I have here back home.
2: So to start out, we just have a couple questions of the first half on your research and just a little bit Mm -hmm. about you. So can you tell us a little bit about your vocational um, and research interest? And what, like, for example, what do you do? um, And what research topics do you focus on?
1: Okay. So first off, um, what I do, I'm actually a pastoral worker. I've been one for more than 30 years. Started early when I was like um, probably three or four years after college because I still work in the industry. But since I was already involved in uh, church work as a young person, uh, after three years in the industry, I worked full time. So I've been working as one. But this last 20 years, I've been involved in a pastoral center Uh, that works towards the vision of a participatory church in the world. Mainly, we do retreats and recollections. We do joining processes with dioceses and parishes in a a way of building uh, basic ecclesial communities and empowering lay people towards pastoral work and building communities, basically. Um, So my research interest would be more towards that. I would like to bridge... Uh, theology and pastoral ministry. And especially since we do a lot of um, processes, we are more involved in uh, finding frameworks so that the church can better uh, be engaged in concerns of the world, also be engaged in uh, ministry, in concerns of people, of families. Um, I'm interested in... Pastoral ministry, ecclesiology. I've been also involved in faith formation a lot since I grew up um, with the youth ministry. So I do Uh, youth ministry and catechesis. So the past articles or researches that we've done has been more towards that, helping church discover its way through this pandemic, uh, especially as we see ourselves more and more becoming a new community in the process at the Gap.
2: That's
0: amazing. You just mentioned, um, you know, seeing new communities or a transformation of communities coming out of, I think you alluded to, the changes that this pandemic has brought. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you've seen?
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, I think I should somehow root you to a particular word that we have used in this pandemic. It's a Filipino word word called kapuwang. Puwang in Filipino means gap. Uh, so uh, kapuwang means companions at the gap. No, in this pandemic, which is a gap, a liminal space, no, uh, we see ourselves no, becoming more and more companions at the gap. And as church, we are called to become better companions to one another, neighbors to one another. As we see, we realize no, especially no, in as as, as this pandemic is ongoing, we realize we cannot solve the problem if we don't do it together, right? Now We have all responsibilities to carry out in this uh, crisis to make things work, to solve the problem. We share a common story. So that is somehow what brought us to look at you know, um, this pandemic in a new way, in a theological way, what God is telling us. Interestingly, kapuwang is also the root word of the Filipino ethos called kapwa, you know, which means neighbor. When you say kapwa, it means uh, we share one identity, we share a story, we share um, the self with the other. No, You don't become fully yourself unless you become a kapwa to the other. So uh, so it's it's really tying in uh, God's vision, but also our Filipino culture. You know? So it's interestingly brought together. And we discovered... For example, in the past year, how people have become more kapwa to one another, have become more neighbors, uh, solving problems together. We, we had an eruption of community pantries all over the country, which is so beautiful because, you know, we're, Filipinos are naturally kind and we, we we serve and we help each other. But very, very powerfully in the past mo- years, you know, we've seen that, you know, how people would come out of their way to... To give a, a sack of rice, a couple of noodles, you no, know, to give anything that they could, you know, to be able to help others who are in need, you no, know, because there are many people who are starving, who are unemployed, who are sick, you know, and also communities gar- guarding their communities, you no, know, on lockdown, you no, know, and so that they won't be infected. So seniors, for example, who can't leave the house, we find young people, you know, initiating. Um, collective action to do the errands for the seniors of their community. It's beautiful, like that. And then, um, like, there are um, marketplaces ma- that were organized within small neighborhoods so that, you know, people don't have to leave their homes. And then we had a case of um, uh, locally stranded individuals, you know, people who can't leave, can't travel. And uh, we see facilities being developed, organized for them so that they could stay. So a lot of this goodwill has been happening, which is really remarkable. At the same time, you know, like in the homes, because people can't leave and you have to worship, you need to do online Masses and services. Interestingly, how we see parents taking up the role as priests, for their, oh, yeah. for their homes, for their families, no. So they come up with creative ways to pray together, to um, you know reinterpret tradition. No, we know that. No, I'm mm-hmm. sure that you've, you've also experienced that how Christmas is done in a different way in this pandemic. So yeah, I, we find that a way of being church and something that helps us as church to understand better what the new normal, where the new normal is taking us, right? So. <laughs> You know, these things and then also social action ministries you now in the we see how the church is now becoming part of a system of a network of groups working together. Before like church has just to be on its own, mm-hmm. but now you know you have to institute, implement policies together with the local government, with NGOs that are working on the ground. So and uh, in a way the church is being taught. And also the church is being thrust into the public sphere in a natural way, which is what we are called to be. So beautiful things are happening even in this you know challenging times and it's good that we take it up and to see where God is leading us. Uh, we fear that you know as church sometimes we have this structure and you know like we will just forget that this happened, but wait, God is speaking to us, God is crossing over, and we need to cross over as well. No? So we need to see that. No? And we feel as a community, that's one thing that we can also contribute because we are in the cross-section of, of um, you know, church and uh, the people, but also school. no. Uh, we also teach in the academic a junk only, but somehow we're bridging, bridging different groups, no. So it's a help to see that and to voice it out. No,
0: mm-hmm. that's beautiful. Just the yeah. the act of loving the neighbor by becoming a neighbor and
1: mm-hmm.
0: taking this opportunity Indeed. to do everything you can to help those in need.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Beautiful. Notwithstanding so. that there are also you know a lot of difficulties. Absolutely. You know? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and I'm
2: I'm very interested on, in your work on body theology, specifically. Mm. I know we've talked a lot about embodiment, um, and you looked at suffering in the Filipino context. Mm. Can you share more about how these themes inform your work and your scholarship? Mm.
1: Yeah, thank you. Uh, you were my conversation partner, very <laughs> significant <laughs> uh, during our university uh, days. Um, campus uh, <laughs> resident yeah. days. Uh, uh, I was in, in Miami at the time when the new president came in in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. And before he was sworn in, he vowed to uh, start an all-out war against drug personalities. And mm-hmm. this drug war, he said, he would be willing to kill drug personalities, small-time and big-time ones, you know, to eradicate drug <laughs> Uh, business in the Philippines completely which is totally <laughs> difficult to do in six months he said but he was true to his word in, uh, right in a matter of like three months there were so many people killed because of that because he really took it out no, in the grassroots level to go to communities especially the urban poor communities and mm-hmm. arrest men who are involved even suspected ones uh, and got them killed, you know, in front of their families, or left them uh, killed uh, on the streets, and it was a terrible, you know, like massacre of people. And I was in Miami that time, and uh of course it hit me so much. You know? And that time I was discerning for a dissertation title, a topic, and I realized, oh my gosh, what is God telling me? You no, know? but you know what hurt me more was not. Only that it was happening to my country. But it was happening to a Catholic, very Christian country. where almost 90% Christians. And people, a lot of people, ac- accepted it as the only way to go. You know? mm. The only way to solve the problem. And they were accepting that. They were supporting the president. He's a very popular president. Even until now, he gets a lot of support from people. So that hit me. So... I realized that was something for me and uh, body theology in the sense that yeah you say things but do something else. What's you no? Know, mm-hmm. Where's the why? Why is there like a conflict there? And um, no, at first I was very much in touch with um, feminist practical theologians uh, mm-hmm. who were really working on the body and who. Always spoke about personal and political, and that mm-hmm. the voice of the bodies should speak out, and also not only speak out in a verbal way, but allow the bodies to speak. No, mm-hmm. so, so that got me interested in working on that. So one is understanding how it happened, what 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 is happening there, why did the story become a reality in the Philippines, but uh, why also why is it. No, what is the system behind it? No? What is the participation of church no, in this? Mm-hmm. So the body of Christ mm-hmm. huh, participating in this story. And so I looked into that and um, I saw the performative cultural turn, perspective mm-hmm. no, as helpful for me. So uh, Turner, mm-hmm. Victor Turner and mm-hmm. his um, social drama, was helpful to me. At the same time, looking at that with um, the Memoria Passionis, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You know? mm-hmm. so the Good Friday, the Black Saturday, and the Easter Sunday of Jesus's life. You know? So from an ecclesiological perspective. So for the Black Friday, or the Good Friday, sorry, I looked at um, the, the stories of men who were killed, the victims, of um, extrajudicial killings. I got in touch with at least 10 families and got, you know, of course they're dead already, but I got, I interviewed um, the families and got to know the people who were killed, their sons, their their fathers. And then that helped me to look at how the men are actually marginalized in many ways in urban communities. We talk mm-hmm. about empowerment of women mm-hmm. And, and how women are victimized, which is a reality. Mm-hmm. But it happens because, first, the men are in an urban society has been also, you know, like, um, yeah, in a in a lot of ways. So, long story. <laughs> I don't know if there's time there for is. me to talk yes. about it. So, that, that was interesting for me to see uh, how marginalized masculinities actually are also... N- nurtured or grew uh, have uh, grown in families now also in society in church also in, because for mm-hmm. example in church work we empower a lot more women mm-hmm. and um for example in urban poor communities the women are the ones given um, funding for to start a business you know. mm. uh, it's more a women in development framework Uh, The rest of the world have already somehow moved into gender in development. That means uh, using both framework, male and female, side by side in development. Mm -hmm. But in the Philippines, it's still pretty much gender, uh, women in development uh, framework. And that is how also the church operates. There are more women who are empowered, which is good. But the men, they're marginalized. They are not, you know... So that's why the violence is happening. That's why they resort to also drug addiction and, you know, um, gangs and violence. Mm -hmm. Because they have no other um, way or opportunities, very limited opportunities given to them. And then when we look at Christianity, the tendency to also be, you know, more feminized also you know mm-hmm. jesus who is um the masculine or the strong um uh yeah in in terms of rituals in terms of practices mm-hmm. you no know, i would say yeah because um that is also that that is something that uh feminists would argue no on but somehow if you see like uh especially in the catholic tradition it's more prayer rosaries and meditation mm. you know, and going out in the streets and you know the yeah the the men are not uh, attracted you no know, to develop their own christian or spiritual disciplines you no know, in in a way that helps them nurture their who they are or their identity yeah and then black saturday are Holy Saturday, I got into um, groups that um, were helping the left behind victims of extrajudicial killings. So mm-hmm. it was an interesting uh, journey uh, attending their programs, but also understanding how they work. You know? Different uh, groups, I, I got in touch with three. And mm-hmm. from there, I discovered, uh, you know, liminality. Mm-hmm. And the uh, framework of Turner helping us to see that within this time of liminality which the s- families are are experiencing, they also get to grow in new communities you know, with one mm-hmm. another. They develop new rituals and traditions to help them go through and um, overcome the terror, the the you know the difficulties that they are experiencing, and also. Find a new way. So it's like Jesus in the empty tomb, mm-hmm. and then Sunday I got in touch with a lot of people who were working for on this drug war. You no, know, like the journalists, the artists of dissent. You no, know, those who were drawing, sketching, paintings, mm-hmm. photo. You know, showing photographs of the killings and how they're also helping you know, to to um, voice. Give voice to the victims and also to find resurrection for them. So Mm -hmm. yeah, (laughs) so it's like a Good Friday, the Holy Saturday, and uh, uh, Easter Sunday participation of um, yeah communities, individuals in the stories of extrajudicial killings. Um, mm-hmm. I know like
2: within my context in like the afro Pentecostal tradition or even just the black church tradition, um, mm-hmm. you talked a little bit about the feminization of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that within my tradition um, and even like I said the black church tradition historically, there tends to be more women in churches mm-hmm. than men. Same. What is it's the same in the the Filipino context? Very much the same um, yes. So, but it it seems like then your work, though, is helping, um, it's got a lot of identity formation and, like, helping to uncover even just the work that you're doing, kind of hearing the stories of Mm -mm. the people who are marginalized that basically maybe the government didn't think their story was worth hearing, um, that you're uplifting that. But then back to your whole notion of capua, um, I can only be because you exist. It's very, exactly. I see a lot of African things too, the Sankofa, um, because of you, I am, like we are mm-hmm. one. So yeah, all of that coming out. So that's beautiful, Joy.
0: It's very interesting yes. as, as a male in North America, um, mm-hmm. the, the language of the marginalization of the masculine I suspect that does happen uh, in certain communities, but that is foreign to my ears. I haven't heard a lot about that. And and you said that that involves um, a lot of men missing out on opportunities. Uh, Could you tell me just a little bit more about what the marginalization of masculinity looks like in the Philippines?
1: Yeah, um, I would speak more about those who are in the lower levels of society. Uh, In the peripheries, uh, uh, usually the urban poor communities in the cities, the like Manila, uh, they are people coming from the provinces, where uh, it is more agricultural in context. So they grew up probably in a culture where the men are farmers or fishermen, and then the women are at home. tending the household, no, taking care of the family, but also maybe helping out. No? So it's more like a subsistence, no a culture, but somehow they're helping each other out. No? Uh, when they get to the city, um, it's a different context altogether. There are no farms, no seas, and uh, whatever skills they have, they don't they cannot make use of mm. because no So they they are not empowered as much. On the other hand, the women, uh, because of being at home, they can manage. No, like uh, some of them would be helping out in the homes, uh, doing laundry or uh, cooking. You know, because these are skills that can be used elsewhere. So the men are quite, you know, they don't know what to do, and so they end up many many times as construction workers. uh, or they learn how to drive a motorbike and they become drivers, tricycle drivers. You know, we have uh, three, three-wheeled uh, vehicles here you know, for small uh, trips, short trips within the neighborhood. Yeah. Or if they become better at it, you know, they become jeepney drivers you know, or bus mm. drivers. You know? So there are very limited skill sets you know, for some of the men. And then also... Yeah, in terms of there's no real support given to them. Um, in urban poor communities, there are street gangs, you know, small-time gangs, mm-hmm. and that's where the drugs come in uh, because they don't get support. You know? So some of them are jobless, they bond with those who are also jobless, and mm-hmm. they get into uh, a need to be supported. And so, you know, the gangs. Uh, start, you no, know, organize themselves. So, yeah. So, it's a whole cycle together. And uh, meanwhile, the women get more empowered because uh, they have more possibilities to uh, earn social capital within the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. They also become the community leaders. And especially in church, you no, know, they also, uh, yeah, they... They pray more, they go to church more, they get involved more in activities, and they become leaders of church too. So they are more empowered. Now, it was interesting because I saw I stayed in a community that was uh, in, uh, affected by extrajudicial killings, and I was there for three months. Now. So I stayed with them, I slept with them. Wow. It was a good way to see how the dynamics are you know, within families and also in the neighborhood. Now. So uh, it was interesting, for example, when <laughs> in the church, it was uh, the preparing for Holy Week and the parish council was talking about um, who will be the 12 disciples. Usually, the 12 disciples are all men. <laughs> so, there's a ritual for the Catholics where during Holy Thursday, they will wash the feet of the disciples and they're all men. But through the years, especially when Fe- Pope Francis came, no? mm-hmm. uh uh, different people came in. No? So there were women, young people, uh, representatives of different sectors of the community. And it's beautiful. So when they're talking about who will be representing the disciples in the community, the women of the parish council said they should be all men. All mm. men. and then And then the sisters were saying, how come they don't want women represented? How could that be? And they were so angry when most of them were leaders, uh, women leaders mm. Mm. and then some so I was also thinking how come so so here you see uh, they women they're very femi- femi- uh, feminine uh, what's this presence you no know, in in the church but they want And then one of the women said uh, they had various reasons. One said, because the, the cross of Jesus is too too heavy. It's only the men who can do that. <laughs> we don't want doing that. And it's too much already for us. But one also said, you know, we've been too much already on the forefront. Hmm. And the men are not seen at all in our community. Mm. It's only the rich men right. who get to be seen. But this is the only chance for the other men to be, you know, visible. So that was something for me. So, you know, because they also see that no? there is a kind of tension there. Mm. Uh, yeah. And then also, when I interviewed the families, the women were very vocal about how um, sometimes they feel good <laughs> that their sons or their husbands passed. No, it gives them a sense of relief because it's true. They gave them a horrible time, mm. no. Uh, so you see that you know that tension there. It's uh, and so it's really good to unpack it and to see where is it coming from you know, in the community, in the families. You know?
2: So, Joy, you're a unique mixture of a scholar and a pastoral leader. Your research, writing, and writing bridges the spaces um, between the academy and the church. Would you mind sharing some of your story on how you found your way on this path?
1: Yeah, so I'm um I got involved in my teenage years. I think I started my story already in that way, you no. Know? So I I remember asking myself, you no, know, as a fourteen year old girl, where you know, who I am? What am I here for? Where am I going? <laughs> so I had all those, you know, existential questions, you no. Know? And I searched you no. Know, Uh, different groups, uh, joining different groups to find answers to these questions. And then I got involved or attended the first prayer meeting that was held in our chapel, in our village. And it it helped me uh, to see this area where I can find nourishment, but also to discover God in a new way. I was born Catholic. I grew up in a Catholic school, got educated. (laughs) As a Catholic, but I never discovered God in a personal way until I joined this community. So it was a beautiful way for me to discover myself, but also to discover my faith. So since that time, actually I lied, no, because they were saying it should be 15 and up, and I was only 14 years old. So I said I was 15 <laughs> years old to allow me to allow me to enter. <laughs> so anyway, since that time, I you know became part of this community. And I, you know, I got involved in first being nurtured as a member, but afterwards became a community leader. I remember being assigned to go out to the peripheries to start a community of young people in one of the, you know, barrios. And I remember sitting in the basketball court, you no, know, with boys, you no, know, so that you know I get to know them. So it was like a, a help for me to see, you no, know, a different world. And then also in our parish. We were, a very, we were very adamant about exploring the Filipino way of celebrating our mm. Christianity. So traditions were always done in a very special way. So yeah, I discovered that and I liked it. And then after college, uh, three years after working in the industry, they got me uh, to be part of the youth ministry full-time worker. I became a youth worker as a counselor first in the parochial school and then, and then the, the church as a full-time youth minister. And that was how I started off you know, working full-time. So that is my way <laughs> in the path and you know, the rest is history. We, we got more and more involved from the parish. We started a center with our parish priest, a center, uh, this center now, uh, that uh, works for more people. So the programs that we have started in our parish, we tried as um, offering to a bigger group in this center. So we got involved in different ways. Yeah, that's how it is. Yeah.
0: We're going to move now to some questions that are designed to be more lighthearted. So the first question that I want to ask you is, what is your favorite
1: smell? Ah, uh, my favorite smell would be probably f- home cooked Filipino dishes. When we Filipinos cook, it's like an assortment of flavors. You no, know? so there's not not one distinct flavor that you smell. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like a sweet, savory, spicy kind of thing. I like that, and then it it attracts you so much. No, you know? you you crave. Suddenly for food, even if it's just the smell of it. So, yeah, that's what I love the most. I missed that a lot when I was in Miami and in mm. the US for five years. So, until now, I savor it. <laughs> Sounds delicious. Yeah. <laughs> okay.
2: So, if you want an
1: all inclusive
2: vacation to anywhere in the world, where would you go?
1: I was thinking of wanting to go to Latin countries, Latin American countries. They say we are the most. Uh, we are the Latinos in Asia, <laughs> Filipinos, oh. <laughs> uh, because we ha- we take a lot from the Spanish uh, culture, mm-hmm. which was with us for more than 300 years. So that connects me with Latin America, and they're very Christian also. I'd like to see how their culture, their rituals, their practices, but of course their food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and since I got in touch with some of them in Miami, <laughs> it's yeah. interesting to tour around and to see how we are connected with them I would love that
0: Joy I understand you said earlier um, you've got three dogs right now if you could (laughs) add any strange animal as a pet what would it be
1: (laughs) I don't know if the iguanas at our campus, uh, <laughs> <laughs> <No>. can <Candace> this would <laughs> would no. fit that list? No, I don't know <laughs> because they were they were interesting to look at in the morning, right? They would like you know appear there, lot mm-hmm. of them, like worshipping the sun. <laughs> yeah, no, but I'd still want to explore other fairy creatures. Uh, I'm a bit late comer as a fairy mom, so I'd like to explore other. F- Dogs, different uh, personalities of dogs, uh, different types of dogs. I think that would be mine. (laughs) Strange animal, (gasps) hamster. I don't know. (laughs) Hamster would be interesting. (laughs) Yeah. So, what is one book
2: in practical theology that you think everyone should read?
1: There are so many favorites. No, I love all the books in practical theology. But I'm quite drawn these days to Terry Vailing. Mm. Yeah, uh, because he speaks about practical theology from a Jewish tradition, from a Jewish mm-hmm. perspective, which is somehow something that we have lost, as you know, through the years. Mm-hmm. This Jewish connection, which is so rich, so mm. poetic, you know, the poesis part. So uh, he got me there. I like that very much. So it would be good for those who are trying to understand practical theology to read this book. So we're, we're
2: going to move on to some questions on theology, the church and spirituality. So I know earlier in the podcast, you talked about your experience working with youth and young adult ministry, um, but also your work previously that you did in academic and um, faith settings on formation, I just want to know what gives you hope about the next generation of the church from these, based on these experiences.
1: Um, what gives us hope for the next generation? Uh, I think, how to say that? It it gives me hope uh, to see that this generation is a generation that has been immersed in realities in a very real way, especially in the last two years. Not only those in the peripheries, but for everyone. I'm teaching, and I teach at a university for upper-middle-class families, students, and they're quite well-endowed, but they're provided for, but they also suffer the same things that young people out in the world are suffering. So everyone shares the same reality. And I'm so excited to see what kind of church and what kind of world they will be building because they have seen it all. They have suffered, but at the same time survived. At the same time, I see in the last two years how the young people are really moving, are taking the deed. You know, like uh, the seniors were not allowed to leave their homes, right? So mm-hmm. in our parishes, it's the young people who took the leadership role uh, acting out as lay ministers, delivering uh, Holy Communion to the sick, uh, doing the um, social action ministries. Of course, we had to get into social media, the online mm-hmm. thing, which had to be spearheaded by young people because it's practically their culture. No? So, mm-hmm. And then also, like um, they're so used to this culture, the postmodern culture of no, you know every voice is important. Giving voice to those who are there, and imagine if they will be given the opportunity, how it will change the world. You know? This collaboration, networking, will really change us. You know? So I'm, you know, I'm hopeful in that. But they will bring us there forward. You know? Yeah, that's great and help us.
0: Speaking of every voice being important. In North America, um, I know myself and many other scholars aren't very familiar with the voices of Filipino Christians and Christian scholars. If we, in North America or anywhere in the world, in the church listened more to Filipinos, what do you think we might learn?
1: Oh, you might learn about theology done in the streets <laughs> theology what we call uh, in bits and pieces because most of the theologians in the Philippines are not um, just writing but they are out in the streets involved in the realities of the world and uh, many times <laughs> time for writing is even less you know, because they have to need meet, meet the needs of people on the ground so I, I think that's a big difference. No, so it's more uh, grounded. Also, very communal because we are used to listening to one another. Uh, also, that um, resistance, no? <laughs> to find its own identity. No, um, we 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 come from a colonized no uh, past. No, uh, we were colonized by five hundred years and. Uh, You know, finding our voice is important for us. So that's a kind of theology we are building. I'm part of a a theological uh, association called Dakateo, and uh, they're very progressive and good mix of scholars. And yeah, that would some be something for the world not to (laughs) to get in touch with.
0: Can Can you recommend any Filipino theologians or? Biblical scholars that are available in English that we should read.
1: Um, biblical scholars, uh, I think, would be one is uh, our Bishop Ambo David. He's uh, one of our bishops here in uh, the Diocese of Kaloakan. He's a biblical scholar, but he's more, of course, you know, in the administration now. But he, you know, he is very grounded in terms of you know allowing us to experience the Word in a new way. Um, in light of realities that are happening. Very vocal, very prophetic. Also, Danny Pilario, who, who was part of my panel, he's in St. John University now in New York. So he has a lot of uh, very, very good articles in terms of looking at um, praxis, no? uh, rough grounds of praxis and to look at what realities. And he actually, he's an unspoken one in terms of the issues of extrajudicial killings, hmm. justice that are happening in the Philippines. Also, Agnes Brasal, one of our foremost feminist theologians who pioneered in migration theology, in um, yeah Christian ethics, also yeah uh, feminist theology. So <laughs> interesting to... Yeah. Also, of course, my colleague Stella, who's part of the Vatican Synod now, okay. uh, mm. she um, is somehow known as a community theologian. <laughs> We'd like to call ourselves more, you know, into communal theologizing because of our context of helping communities develop a participatory way of being church. So that is her specialty, and she's now part of the synodal process in the. Vatican now.
0: And what's her full name so we can look her up?
1: Stella Padilla.
2: So, Joy, in addition to being a communal scholar, you are also a practical theologian. So just in your own words, tell us what is practical theology and how has being a practical theologian enriched your spiritual life?
1: Um, I think practical theology is a spiritual discipline for me. It is something that you do uh, as a Christian. If you look at the pastoral cycle, basically that's what we're called to do, to to listen to what is happening and to to discern how God is calling you and to respond accordingly uh, to the Christian call. Uh, But as practical theologians, uh, we look at it more in a deep way um, uh, in conversation with uh, social science, of course, deepening it. So looking at different lens to allow God's reality and God's revelation you know, to be more um, understood you know, in today's world. So I guess the more that I immerse myself in practical theology, I discovered more what it means to to pray, mm-hmm. uh, what it means to become part of a community and also to respond to my call, to my calling now as a person in this world. Yeah. So, we are very controversial. <laughs> <laughs> Practical theology something like so misinterpreted or misunderstood. It hurts me sometimes when people say, ah, that's actually applied theology. That's a, just another term for applied theology. Oh, that's just pastoral ministry, you know, like that. But, you know, I'm pretty proud that uh, I decided to take up practical theology because it helps you be more conversant with the world, but at the same time, uh, through the lens of our Christian sources and tradition. So it's a more balanced now. Mm-hmm. way of uh, and I'd like to look at it as a dance actually
0: Choi <laughs> D- D- did you say uh, you like to look at it as a as a dance
1: it's a dance because when you dance you have the space you have the movement you dance with the music there's the rhythm you
2: know mm-hmm.
1: and uh, you know, so everything has to go together you know? and uh, I think that's how practical theology also works no if you you find a space, you no, know, which means you look at the context, you no, know, you move, no, you know, uh, by listening to the music of the stories of people. You know, and then your movement will also depend on them. So as you theologize, it's not leaving them aside. Sometimes theology is like, Okay, <laughs> I know what it means and then I'll start writing. But actually every step if you go through the four steps of the pastoral cycle, every step is a dance, you no. Know? So it's a spiral. And then what else? Then action. You know, action. So it's very active. No, you're just you're not like uh, thinking about God in the air, but it's like a grounded kind of God. Some a God that you can touch or that you can feel.
0: It's embodied. You can't dance without your body. Embodied, exactly. Exactly,
1: exactly. Sorry, yeah. That's a a
0: great analogy. I'm gonna remember
2: that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, thank you.
2: So, if you had to be a scholar in something else besides practical theology, which discipline would you have chosen?
1: Um, I my undergrad was um, psychology. Mm. Mine as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we talked about it once, right? Mm. So, I guess if I had the chance, I would get into it also, like um, more more um I yeah I tried counseling but more social psychology I'm quite mm-hmm. interested in that you know, which is actually very close to what we're doing you know, so sorry yeah uh, I just cannot get rid of it <laughs> yeah yeah probably that would be something for me mm-hmm.
0: if there was a young person trying to discern mm-hmm. the calling for their life would you have any advice or, or guidance for them of maybe places they could look to try to discern mm. calling
1: i would ask them to um ask themselves where is their heart <laughs> what makes you get up in the morning what makes you excited to start your day what is something that fascinates you about the world you know? and what do you dream you know about the world and for yourself you know? because you know, this question of uh, appreciating who you are and what makes you alive you know, is where God wants you to be. <laughs> you know, it's the first step to discover how this dance with God can happen. So if that, if that is something that helps the, the young person to discover herself. Second is, who are you with you know, with your dream? So mm-hmm. who helps you nurture this dream? helps you define this better? Is it your family? Do you have a support outside? Your peer group? Or if you haven't found it, uh, is there a group that will help you discover that? And then, yeah, stepping out and daring. So just try. Because uh, a lot of young people now have been hopping from one place to another just to find their way. Something that is good, yes, but sometimes uh, they're happy but they're, they're not daring <laughs> not mm-hmm. to stay and live it No, that's that's my fear also no? so once you've found something try to dare and live it no? try to, no, to allow yourself to discover that more and more and through the struggle no? uh, have the courage to be in despair also if you can't find it no? and then yeah that's where God also will meet you that's where you meet God so it's not something that you discover. Some people are gifted with that, no? with the life that, you know, right like at the moment mm-hmm. they wake up, they want to be a priest or a sister. Or, <laughs> and that's it. But if you ask these people, you know that they have also been through a lot. No? And the journey mm-hmm. inside happens no? on and on. It d- doesn't stop. No? So, yeah, I think people find their way. And yeah, it's good to ask first, where are you and what where do you want to be?
0: That's very wise.
1: Mm-mm.
0: What's one thing that you did learn from your stay in this United States?
1: Uh, to find my voice. Mm. Uh, America has helped me to, uh, you know, to listen better to myself, uh, to, you know, the individual uh, against the community. Been, I grew up so much in community. It's not that I did not hear my voice when I was with community, but... It gave me the space, no, being there, and then also the different flavors of Christianity. I enjoyed so much in the U.S., Mm -hmm. which gave me a community, no, here and there there was like with Candace, no, and my (laughs) my other classmates in practical theology. Mm -hmm. Beautiful to see the different uh, colors of Christianity.
2: Well, Joy, it's been a real pleasure talking to you today. We've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Um, so just thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you. Thank you again for having me. And uh, it's a gift to you know, to be with you, to have this dialogue. It helps me also to ponder on <laughs> many things. You no, know? mm-hmm. So it's a kind of a spiritual conversation for me. Thank you. Thank you for this gift.
2: Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, visit our website at bridgentheology.com. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe to it in your podcast player, review it, or share it with others. This episode was produced by Kevin Hill.